Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book, but also the podcast stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is the second interview we're doing for Chapter 1. We're going to be talking to Chris Wilson today. Chris was one of the original programmers on the Mosaic team, and he went on to be a high-level programmer and executive working on the Internet Explorer team at Microsoft. So in a way, uh, the topics in this interview are going to straddle Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, so if you want more background, make sure that you listen to the relevant uh, episodes for those two chapters. And now here's Chris Wilson. Chris Wilson, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having me. So um, my first question is always, uh, you know, the most basic, which is, uh, you know, where you grew up. I think you're uh, you're an Illinois native, correct? Pretty much, yeah. I was actually, uh, I was born in Oklahoma, but then we moved to Illinois, to the Chicago area when I was about three years old. So, you know, I really don't remember a whole lot before that. In fact, my earliest memory is the actual trip up to the Chicago area. So I kind of consider myself a Chicago area native. And um, you went to the University of Illinois. I did, yep. And so that's, I'm assuming you were a computer science major or? Yeah, I actually, I started out in computer engineering, mm -hmm. um, which was kind of, at the time at least, was a, a blend of electrical engineering and computer science. And I went through, uh, I think I was in my first semester of sophomore year, and I was, I had to take a bunch of like differential equations level calculus um, because you, you sort of needed that in order to do the analog part of electrical engineering. 
and I was doing my electrical engineering class, and I had my first computer programming class. And I'd, I'd learned to program before that. You know, I'd, I'd taught myself uh, basic, of course, as a, a younger kid. And I think I'd, I'd taught myself Pascal the summer before in preparation for my first CS class because that's, that's what it was taught in at the time. And I got about halfway through the semester, and I was doing awfully in this differential equations class, and I desperately wanted to drop it. And I went to my advisor, and he's like, well, you can't drop it unless you drop the, uh, the electrical engineering class, too, because it's a prerequisite. And I was like, well, can't really do that. But actually, I'm, I really love my computer science class. In fact, I was acing it. I was like, I think I ended up being number four in the class, and I didn't crack the book for the final at all, because I knew that I had an had an A going in and I didn't have to work any harder for it. And that basically, that semester taught me, you know, you're really good at programming, <laughs> maybe not so much at the circuitry part, um, because there is a lot of pretty heavy math and it was not what I was super passionate about. Um, and so I changed my major immediately after that. I actually was a, a grader for the same CS class for several semesters after that too. So did you start working at the NCSA while you were uh, before graduation or after graduation? Uh, before, actually. So in um, I, I'd gotten together with a bunch of other students and done some projects. We were working on a ray tracer at one point, and uh, I was in the, um, the Association of Computing Machinery, the ACM, uh, the UIUC chapter, and the specifically the, the SIGGRAPH portion. Um, we had a, a special interest group for graphics, and I hung out with a bunch of these guys, and one time this guy comes to our meeting and it's like, "Hey, I'm you know I work at NCSA. Um, we're looking for some students to to come do some programming projects for us." And I went and interviewed with him, and he was really impressed by some of the stuff that I'd done. And they hired me on as a part-time student, basically. And there were a number of us that got hired on and loved it so much that I ended up working pretty much full time as a part-timer when I was there, um, even during classes, which of course got a, a little bit, bit challenging. Mm -hmm. And you, you were working originally on the, uh, NCSA Telnet project doing the, the PC port maybe. Yeah. So when we, um, when we started, I was hired to work on Telnet and Telnet, which, you know, most people just think of it as this little command line application. But at the time you have to remember this was in like windows 3.0 days. So, you didn't have a TCP IP package baked into the OS that most people were using. Right. If right. you wanted, if you wanted internet service, if you wanted any kind of networking service, you had to go buy a custom hardware package. You had to go buy a a custom software package, and um, probably get Windows 3.1 as well in order to for work groups in order to get it to all work. And it was just this real mishmash of different pieces and networking cards were really expensive and I remember the network that we had at the time was was Ethernet but it was the coax cable Ethernet where you had to terminate each end of this connection like it was mm -hmm. a single single pipe and you had to terminate each end or it caused these ringing effects that basically took the network down for everybody <laughs> so it was very fragile and um, so I was hired to work on this this PC software that we did it was open source um, uh, with a very permissive license, actually. There was another group that basically took our code, and every time we released it, they would add a couple of features, and then they would sell it to um, to different companies. And it was funny because 
the University of Illinois actually bought a license for the sold version because they needed some of the features that was in it, <laughs> um, even though we were producing the, the core of it right. at NCSA. So I worked on that for a while and then um, hired another, we hired another student, a friend of mine actually, um, to work on Telnet and I started working on some, um, uh, on this project called NCSA Audible Image, which was, NCSA had a bunch of tools for doing visualization of simulations that scientists would run and researchers would run on the supercomputers. It's actually what we were there for was make it so that um, so that researchers could sort of unlock the stuff they were running on the supercomputers on their desktop machines, whether their desktops were X Windows, Mac, or PC. And so I was working on the software to do um, visualization and sonification of data that you would pull from these these big data sets off the, the supercomputer, which was pretty cool. And then uh, this whole web idea kind of got introduced into the team, and well, we it, started needing to, to, to work on that too. So do you remember when you first heard of doing uh, a web project of what eventually would become Mosaic? Yeah, I mean, there was um, there was this buzz around the office because we were all in in one building it was the software tools group was a fairly small group overall um and mark andreason and um oh, totally blanking dave thompson uh mm-hmm. were were poking around and david run across this web stuff and he showed it to mark and mark got really excited about it and started working on it at night trying to you know build a, a new version of it and um, then heard, it went around the office, basically, I, and we we all kind of were like, hey, that's kind of cool. That's a neat idea. I mean, the, the networking system at the time, the most prevalent networking tools that we were using were things like Usenet and Gopher. And, you know, Gopher had this very, um, this very top-down centralized approach to it where running a Gopher server was a big deal. Like you had to pay a license fee. You had to run the server. It was very structured. It was not very flexible. And the web, by contrast, was like, you know, everyone can be a publisher. You can run a web server on your own machine, on your own desktop machine even, and just have it connected to the outside world. And, you know, it's it, it was very, uh, very bottom up from the content production side. I, I had heard that uh, Dave Thompson was busy with another project so it it was was it that that mark took it and ran with it or was it assigned to him or it just sort of grew out of the web at the time the excitement on the web yeah i think that um really what happened was mark got really excited about it and took it and ran with it and dave was definitely working on some of the the visualization tools kind of hardcore big data stuff and really assigning tasks wasn't a a big thing at NCSA at the time. You know, we were very, very open about what we were working on and, you know, moving stuff around and and working on things that you found really interesting rather than just, oh, your job is to do, you know, this project here and don't do anything outside this. Um, Certainly, we were a lot more flexible than that. So the first version of Mosaic that um, Mark and uh, Eric Bina do is for X window. So how you eventually do the the PC version. So how how do you get involved in that project? Well, so at the time, um, this was actually after I had graduated, and when I when I was about to graduate, I was looking at what I wanted to do de- do next. And you know, my friend that I'd I'd gotten uh, 
that I'd convinced to come work at NCSA, um, John Middlehauser, he came in and uh, was working on these projects with me on PC Telnet. And then we started doing a Windows version. And we had, I mean, we were doing everything down to the networking stack at the time because, again, most people didn't have Windows for Workgroups. They didn't have a TCP IP package. So we had to do the whole networking stack part in Windows and then build Telnet on top of that. Um, when the web stuff came along, he and I kind of split it up and he finished off a bunch of the Telnet stuff while I got started on the, the core of, of Mosaic on Windows. And then we both basically worked on it from then on. But, but again, it's not it, – it, someone didn't come to you and say, hey, we need someone to do this. It's more this is your interest, so you just say, well, let, let's take this on. Yeah, I mean, at that point, it was pretty clear that Mosaic was going to be a, a very exciting thing for a lot of people. And we really wanted to have it across all three platforms. Um, and ha we already had a Mac team working on it. And the Windows team was kind of the smallest at the time because – Paradoxically, because even though Windows was really, really popular at the time, most of the the uh, educational institutions and most of the researchers had either X Windows systems if they were researchers where they needed the the computing power, or they had Macintoshes because Apple had a really good education program at the time. So we were a little bit smaller. We got a little bit later start, but we also had the the benefit of seeing what the other guys had done and knew kind of what pitfalls to avoid. But when I, when I graduated, I started looking. So this was before we started doing mosaic by about a year, I started looking at, you know, what I wanted to do next. And I had gotten to the point, John was going to go to grad school there. I'd gotten to the point where, you know, I'd, I'd gotten all of my recommendations. I'd filled out the paperwork to apply to grad school. I had a, a research assistantship that NCSA would give me. And I just kept putting off the writing the essay to my application. And I realized at some point I was having so much more fun working at NCSA and writing software you know, for a living. And I was learning so much more about how programming was really doing. And I really didn't want to go sit in a classroom for another two years when I was already learning in that environment. I was already, you know, there, there was already a lot of uh, of academia surrounding me. I could certainly find things, have the opportunities to explore things, but I didn't really want to do that in a traditional classroom. So I basically went to NCSA and said, hey, can we just make this full time? And they sort of worked that paperwork out. Um, mm -hmm. took a while. But then, so I was kind of heading up all of the Windows and PC software that we were doing at the time. And I certainly saw Mosaic taking off and was like, wow, yeah, we've got to, you know, we've got to figure out how to realign what we're doing to work on that. So we stopped doing a lot of work on on image visualization tools, finished off the Telnet product, and then jumped right into working on Mosaic. And, I mean, the the X-Window and, and Mac versions of Mosaic were popular, but surely, you know, once your Windows beta comes out, that's got to be the one that really takes off, right? There was definitely a lot of people waiting for... The, the the Windows beta to come out. I remember um, we kept getting people ask, you know, when's when's the Windows version going to come out? When's the Windows version going to come out? And when we released it, when we released the very first beta release, which was uh, oh, I think sometime in ninety um, ninety three, I guess uh, it, you know, we put it up on the FTP server and we were watching the FTP server log. 
And we just got, I remember we got so excited when it hit like a thousand downloads after I forget how long. I mean, it was like a day or, or a week or something. It hit a thousand downloads and we were really excited. And a, a few years ago, I did the math to figure out how quickly, um, you know, we get a thousand downloads on Chrome. And even then when Chrome was less popular, it was like, you know, a 50th of a second or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just so immensely more people on the internet now and, and focused on this and interested in it. Um, it's, it's always been really exciting to me to, to affect people like that. Um, now you're eventually, uh, gonna leave the NCSA, but before we get into that, you know, basically a, a large portion of the mosaic team does end up leaving. So I've always been curious, was there, was there uh, a bad relationship with the higher ups at the NCSA? <laughs> did people just feel like there wasn't much of a future in academia? Why did everybody, do you think, ended up leaving? Well, I think there were there were a number of things going on there. Partly, it was there were some there were personality conflicts on the team and what we were doing. The software tools group really did have a charter to continue doing this, you know, scientific visualization work like that that's what they were originally created for was to build these tools so researchers could visualize their their data that was coming off the supercomputer and obviously when you compare that to a web browser and the world wide web because we also did the web server there as well mm-hmm. when you compare those two tasks um you know the the latter one the the web stuff doesn't quite fit in the mission in the same way and I think that Mark and, and some of the other guys there really wanted to see NCSA just drop everything else like a hot rock and go totally support the web and scale up to do it. And that's really something that, you know, if you were if you were in a startup or even a small to medium-sized company and you saw one of your products getting so much attention and having so much potential, absolutely you would figure out how to do that, right? You'd go right. mortgage your house to, to right. hire more people. You'd you know, you would you would run with it. And I think NCSA was not really capable of scaling like that. And then they had all these companies who were wanting to license what um what they were doing. They wanted to license the Mosaic browser and, you know, put it put it on uh put it on other in other software packages or put it with a book or something. Mm-hmm. And so they started having to work out how to deal with all these licenses, and that was kind of um, kind of frustrating too. And I think I saw the the group who left was also frustrated that we were um, maintaining the license. Like it wasn't um, for the Mac and PC versions, if I recall. It wasn't even open source at the time, but it was definitely a closed license. Like you had to license it if you wanted to re republish it Mm -hmm. so there were those sorts of things and i think the opportunity just got to be quite a bit too much particularly for mark who i really i think really wanted to go run with the 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 possibility i mean the the potential there was clear and ncsa i think to him was not really realizing that well and you actually left um early as well before uh everyone uh headed out to netscape you you had uh gone out to seattle even before that correct yeah well i'd actually i had um i decided that i was going to leave ncsa not because i was um tired of doing web stuff or what we were working on but i had 
you know, I'd lived in Illinois nearly my entire life and I kind of wanted to try something a little bit new. And um, my wife had graduated the same time I did. We met in school and we, we weren't married at the time, but um, we kind of wanted to to go experience something different. She wanted to go to grad school and we kind of looked around, saw where she could go to grad school and I could get a job that would be interesting. And I found a company in Seattle that was one of the licensees of NCSA Mosaic or was about to become one of the licensees of Mosaic and managed to to get a job with them. So it was kind of, you know, good timing for me. And then a week later, the entire team, you know, my, my friend John calls me up and says, yeah, we're all we're all leaving. Like Mark had actually also left, I mm. think, even before I had and had gone out to California. And that's where he met Jim Clark. And they, right. they got the idea of doing you know, what became Netscape. Right. And so they all, you know, decided to leave a, a week after I did. I was actually still in Illinois because I worked there for about two months remotely before my wife and I got married and, and moved out to Seattle. Well, the company that you joined was Spry, right? And um, I actually remember Internet in a Box, but uh, t- <laughs> tell everyone about uh, Spry and Internet in a Box. So again, you have to remember that when you went and you got your, you have your Windows PC and suddenly you're like, hey, I've been hearing about this internet thing. I want to get online. Like the, this is not, you know, today I think internet service is nearly like air or water to us. Like we, you know, you just expect it to to be available and to I, have it. And I always everything. think, you know, how am I going to tell my kids that there was, you know, a PC industry for 15 years before <laughs> you, there was, I know. You, you connected them. Like how could, how could, what did people do with computers? Exactly. And, but at the time, you know, you went, you went to, to CompUSA and bought a new computer and got it home and maybe, maybe it had a modem built into it. It certainly did not, not have a networking card in it, um, but it might have had a modem. And if it didn't, you could buy a modem pretty easily. I still somewhere have uh, this external 2400 baud modem I bought mm-hmm. in sometime in the, the early, early 90s, I think, that I was really proud of at the time. But um, you got it home and you're like, okay, well, what do you need to connect? Well, first of all, you need the software. You need the TCP IP stack, just the basic networking layer. Which we, all- we should point out that wasn't even added to Windows till what? Windows which, 95, right? Which was not in Windows until Windows 95. And then you needed the set of software to actually connect. Like you needed an FTP package. You needed a web browser. You needed, you know, maybe you needed a Gopher package, et cetera. You needed Telnet all of these different tools. And oh, by the way, you also, presuming you had a modem even, you needed a number to call. Like you needed an internet service provider, right? Like what we think of it today as an ISP. Mm-hmm. So Spry was really, they had two different businesses and one of them was the software side and one of them was the networking side because you will still actually occasionally find people on the network with SpryNet email addresses. Um, I am forget how, like when I stopped really seeing this, but I did find one not too long ago. I'm not sure if it was dead or not, but Mm -hmm. uh, it was still published at least. So Spry basically sold all of this stuff together in one box for people, which is why they called it internet in a box. So you would go to your local software store, you know, you'd go to egghead software because they actually had storefronts back then. And, um, you know, you'd buy this one box said internet in a box in it. And you would take it home and install the software, and it would install all of the networking layer. It would install all the software tools, and then you'd type in your credit card number. 
and it would dial up, you know, SpryNet's array of servers across the country and get you a connection and get you online. And granted, you were paying for it pretty heavily um, unless you found a different ISP that was local that was cheaper because it was 1-800 service and long distance was not free at the time and all that kind of stuff. But um, but it would get you completely online out of one box. And that was pretty pretty cool. And it also had all of these tools together. And like, you know, we all sat in the same floor and we all worked together. So they had kind of a consistent look and feel across them and that kind of stuff. Did you mainly work on the Air Mosaic? Was that, I, since you would come from Mosaic, I assume <laughs> that that's what you had been on. Yeah, I pretty much only worked on Mosaic. Um, my job in the year or so, year and a half I was at Spry, largely was trying to convince um, convince the management of the same thing that I think Mark had, had convinced Jim Clark of, that the browser stuff was going to be absolutely enormous and they needed to have a huge team working on it. And really it was like me and then it grew a little bit beyond that. And then um, because, Spry... Be, because the browser was only a piece of the overall package that Spry is selling, right? Right. I mean, so we had me working on the browser and then we had another guy working on the Gopher client and another guy working on the FTP client. And, you know, I was saying, look, this is, you know, this is a... <laughs> This is a a team. This is the all the guys that I used to work with. They all went somewhere else and were doing this and and just working on this. And um, I, I think Spry got to the point of, hey, we have sort of a vision. And then they sold to uh, to CompuServe, mm-hmm. like they got bought by CompuServe, which was owned by H and R Block at the time. Right, right. And I got the impression in the end after the fact, because I had, I left not too long after that. Um, after the fact, I got the impression they'd basically bought Spry for their network service list. Like they had a ton of clients of SpryNet and CompuServe were just kind of aggregating those clients in. So they became Mm -hmm. CompuServe clients and they became a little bigger. Because I mean, uh, Spry with internet in a box was first to market before even, uh, Netscape Navigator, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because they started by basically just taking NCSA Mosaic and repackaging it like, a, you know, replacing the um, replacing the icon and replacing the, you know, the the text everywhere and that sort of stuff. And in by comparison, of course, what the what the Netscape guys had to do, they had to start from the ground up and they could I don't know if they did or not, but they could have gone and used like LibW3 from Tim Berners-Lee to do some of the network network protocol stuff Mm -hmm. but that would you know that's the only thing they had available to them they couldn't go take the ncsa mosaic source code i mean they they didn't presumably didn't have it anyways since it wasn't open source and you know license wise of course could not directly use it either getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking what's your secret Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So you you leave Spry after it gets purchased by 
by CompuServe. Was there ever actually any talk of at at any point of maybe going to Netscape and getting the whole band back together? Um, so I, you know, after the uh, after the whole the rest of the the core group, because there were there were still a few people who had been working on the browser who remained at NCSA actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I after they decided to leave and I found out about this, I did have a, a brief chat with, with Mark. Um, it kind of came down to, I wasn't really sure that I wanted to just go move and keep working on the same stuff. And I didn't want to move either. Um, you know, I was, I already had planned to move to Seattle and my wife was already accepted at grad school and all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of, um, it kind of wasn't really where I wanted to go and they didn't, they didn't make a, a big push to to get me to change my mind or anything, so that was kind of where it was at. Well, then it's it's logical that you ended up at Microsoft, I guess, because you get to stay in Seattle. Yeah, it was it was interesting because my wife swears that when we moved to Seattle, I swore I would never work for Microsoft, and you know it was always this weird thing of working in the tech field um, in Seattle. Uh, at that time, you know, you would, you'd tell people what you did, like they'd ask, you know, what do you do? And you'd say, Oh, I, I, I'm a programmer. And they'd be like, what division of Microsoft do you work for? Right. Right. And I was like, uh, no, I don't, you know, I actually work for this other company, et cetera. And, um, but then I really got to the point with Spry where I just didn't want to work there anymore. It was not, uh, not a great environment in the end, um, and certainly wasn't really going anywhere with the web stuff. But I wanted out of there really badly. I went and interviewed at Microsoft. They made me a good offer. Um, I actually, when I started out, I was working on something completely unrelated to the browser. You know, Um, I'm super curious about that because I had heard that it was sort of like a a proto search engine project, maybe. Yeah, so what what I was hired to do was we had this team whose charter was basically to provide the search engine on Microsoft.com, right? So think of this as a distant forerunner of, you know, the Bing search box. But it was, we were we were licensing the search engine data from Lycos, I think. Mm-hmm. So we would take the Lycos data and then we would massage it to get it into our own database format. And then we had our own database that was doing the serving of, of queries, um, we had some what was presumably really good database backends at the time, but my my particular job was basically, well, we have all of this data across Microsoft.com and other Microsoft properties that isn't necessarily indexed well by Lycos because this was a long time ago, right? And you know, um, search engines weren't quite as good about indexing data and keeping it really up to date as they are today. And so my job was basically to write a web crawler that would crawl Microsoft.com, index everything, and then you know stick that into our database um, along with the, all the data we got from Lycos. And the fun part about this was it was a pretty broad uh, it was a pretty broad challenge because a lot of the data that we had in uh, on Microsoft.com was in Microsoft formats, like it was in Office format. Mm-hmm. And um, that was not indexable 
very easily at the time. Like there was no, there were no native indexing tools or anything. But we did have these tools, this library that would convert um, any Microsoft Office format to an RTF file. So I ended up writing an RTF parser and then using this library. So anytime it hit an Excel document, it would read it, pull all the data in, and then you know convert it to an RTF document. And then I would I would index the RTF document and save that in in the database index. And the real problem was this um, this conversion software was incredibly buggy. Like it was a library that was meant to be run at a user level, and it crashed all the time. So I basically had to had to wrap it and protect it in a, a try catch block so that it wouldn't um, it wouldn't crash and take down the entire web crawler <laughs> because it was crashing so often and I couldn't get the the team working who owned that to fix it. Mm-hmm. But in the end, we got all of our content really well indexed, and it was right about that time that the uh, the IE team, you know, I was I was working with um, I was working with this one intern who, uh, you know, he was hanging out on the team. Turns out he'd been lent to this web crawler team or the, the search team by the Internet Explorer team, by, by Ben Slivka, who was in charge of the IE team at the time. And he and I were, like, hanging out late one night working on stuff, and, and we got to talking, and, and he figured out, like, what I'd done before, that I'd worked on NCSA Mosaic, and, you know, that I was that Chris Wilson. Mm-hmm. And he was like... Oh, this is really, you know, this is awesome. And he goes back and talks to another, um, to his program manager friend there. And the funny thing is they were both named Arthur and the programmer was like, Arthur BI was his, his, uh, his email alias. Mm -hmm. And the, the program manager was Arthur BL (laughs) was his alias. Well, and that's really, you can really confuse that because of the I and the L. Yeah, so the, yeah. the next day, I get this phone call, and it says Arthur, what I think is Arthur B.I., but it's all in caps, so I don't really notice mm-hmm. that it's actually Arthur B.L. Um, and I pick it up, and it's like, oh, hey, Arthur, how's it going? And this guy's like completely <laughs> taken aback. And it's basically this program manager is calling me to say, hey, we really want you to come work on the IE team, which is not really a cool thing to do. I mean, this is this is poaching in its finest form. Right. Um, and... Microsoft doesn't like that. And, you know, when they said that, I was like, you know what? I don't want to be away from the browser. I love the browsing platform and I absolutely love working on the client side, not the server side, which is what I was really doing. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was like, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. You know, let's make it happen. And I kind of burned some bridges with some of my management who was not happy that I'd, you know, I'd only joined five months before or so and I wanted to go work on something else. So do you think it was uh, Ben Slivka that, that worked behind the scenes to get you over there? I mean, because it's obvious if you've got an original Mosaic guy, you know, it, he should be on the browser team. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what happened was Ben and other people. And I know it did go up very high in the hierarchy before it just got like, hey, this is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Shut up. <laughs> right, um, right. But, uh, you know, I don't I don't know how hard anyone had to advocate for that or not. It was, I think it was more, you know, people were really excited um, that I was there and working on stuff and I'd been doing a good job already, but there were plenty of people who could have done that work. So just for chronological sake, you, you joined the Internet Explorer team uh, about what year? So I joined the IE team in, 
1995, mm-hmm. and it was sometime in the fall, like October or so, I think. I joined right before we shipped IE 2.0. Okay. Because I did one check-in in IE 2.0, and then we rolled into the IE 3 cycle. Right. So if if I'm correct, um, so so you're joining right when the IE 3 cycle starts, is that right? Yeah, just before that. Okay, yep. so then your big contribution is at the time you're evangelizing for uh, CSS, right? Yeah, so it was kind of one of those, you know, I just joined a new team, I'd done a little work. I was clearly in kind of the rendering engine space in um, in the web browser because that's what I'd been really passionate about and I'd been poking at a bunch of stuff and in early, I guess it was early 96, after the team had kind of rolled off of IE2, my manager comes in to me and, and says, hey, we're, you know, we're looking at what to do next, and um, we're, we're thinking we want you to do frame sets, because we didn't have frame sets in IE2.0. They were mm-hmm. new. Um, uh, Netscape, Netscape had, had added right, them. Yeah. Right. Um, we had just, in IE2, they had just implemented tables, which NCSA Mosaic had done, and then Netscape had, had quickly done as well. And, um, I was like, you know, frame sets are great. Like they're, they're, we got to do those. I get it, but we should really do this thing called CSS. Like, let me show you what it's supposed to do. And this is something, you know, Netscape's not even looking at this yet. It would be awesome. We'd have this really richly powerful visual language in order to, to do things. You know, that's overselling it a little bit because it wasn't, that incredibly rich at the time, but you could do margins and negative margins and you could set colors and fonts and all these other things that, that were really, you know, they, they let you do a lot of design work that you simply couldn't do before. I mean, prior to that, really every web page kind of did look the same and it was a standardized thing. So it wasn't like we were just inventing more HTML tags to, to try to make it look pretty. And so my manager, uh, John Cordell went off and Say, oh, let me let me think about it. You know, let me talk to some people. And he comes back at like an hour later, and she's like, "Yep, we found somebody else to work on on frame sets. You know, you just go work on CSS." And so that's basically what I did in IE three. I was, you know, doing a couple other things too, and sort of general rendering HTML engine stuff. But that was sort of my core focus in in IE three. And and Internet Explorer is the first major browser to to support. Uh, cascading style sheets, right? Yep. And so, is it was it one of those things where, you know, it's it's the the competitive juices between uh, you guys and and the navigator team. You know, each each version, you're trying to come up with cooler features faster than the other guy. <laughs> I mean, there definitely was some competitiveness at that point. I think that you know, at the time. Mark Andreessen was was really throwing the gauntlet down at Microsoft even, you know, foreshadowing what I think eventually has come to pass, which is that that whole native platform is considerably less um, less a focus than the web platform today because the web platform has taken a bunch of that that space. But he made this well-publicized comment right in around there sometime about turning Windows into a poorly debugged set of device drivers. Right, right. And, you know, that that's in certainly in retrospect and, and being well away from that, I can understand the point he was making. And he made it in a way, of course, that resonated with a lot of people. But fundamentally, he was kind of right. Like the goal was to create this cross browser, cross OS, cross device platform 
that you would then use for a lot of computing that at the time you had to have a native OS specific application for. I think about in the mid 90s, there were so many software packages that literally were just some specialized encyclopedia on a CD-ROM disc. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's ludicrous to even think about that as a model today. Like, why would you ever do that? We mm-hmm. have Wikipedia, right? right? I mean, we have all of these other networking tools. We have, you know, we have Wikipedia, we have all the dictionaries and, and thesauri and encyclopedic material on the web available instantly you could possibly think of. And um, it, it's just such a different model today. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was definitely, well, this is, you know, this is just another software product and we have to be competitive in it. And, you know, this is a very different scope. And I think Windows 95 was really where Microsoft started realizing that there was another shift coming. Like Windows had been the the shift towards visual mm-hmm. data. And beyond that, there'd been the CD-ROM drive. And then suddenly you started seeing that, yeah, you know, sooner or later, everybody's going to have a broadband connection. Everyone's going to use the network to get information, mm-hmm. not a huge stack of CDs in their, right. in their basement. Well, actually, and that's what I'm curious about. So, you know, when you join the IE team, this is after Windows 95 is launched, and this is when Microsoft really turns its focus to the internet for basically every corner of its business. What was the what was the atmosphere like on the team? Were, were was there a lot of pressure? Were, you know, you're sort of the tip of the spear. If if, if Microsoft is is uh, moving in this direction uh, strategically, yeah. I mean, there was there was a lot of excitement on the team. I don't think there was a lot of pressure in the sense of you know the the it, the leadership whipping the the rank and file or anything. It was more we were really excited by what we were doing. We really wanted to make some. Um, we wanted to make a, a great product and a great browser, and we were discovering as we went about how to do that and what that meant. And I think that we got to that point. Um, we got to the point where even the team that we had was was definitely not the team we needed to be, and that happened right towards the end of IE three. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember there was a, a meeting where. Uh, the IE team guys, you know, myself included, we were going to go over and see this demo from this other team in Microsoft who we'd heard were doing some kind of like editing engine or something, forms package. I wasn't really sure what that meant even. Um, the Trident team. Uh-huh. And they were, uh, and it turns out I had a conflict. I had something else I had to go to or a meeting or something. And so this this friend of mine goes who sits on the team with me um, goes to this meeting and he comes back later and I'm, I'm already back in my office. He comes into my office and I'm like, Oh, how'd it go? You know, what's, how was it? And he was just like, we're screwed. Like they're so far ahead of us. Like they're, they've got this amazing, you know, everything is dynamic. You can change anything and everything like you can change it programmatically and it just magically takes effect and you can edit things live in the page. And it's just, it's he, amazing. He's, he's talking you know, about... we're, we're out of a job is basically what he came back from this meeting with because this other team is just going to get plugged in and replace everything that we do. And he's talking about Trident at this point. Is that and right? he's talking about Trident. Okay. And I'm like, you know, okay, whatever. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll figure it out or, Hey, we can, we can add editing too. Sure. No problem. And of course, you know, they really, 
they did have an amazing, amazing uh, product that they'd put together. But um, it was probably a week or so later that they actually, the Trident team asked me to come demonstrate for them and talk about CSS. And so I went over there and they didn't have CSS at all. They were just raw HTML. Mm, lucky, um, lucky for you. And yeah, so I went in and I, you know, I showed off everything that CSS could do, the visual design stuff that it could do, um, the style sheet application, you know, to do property groups and things like that and, and selectors and how selectors worked and all this other stuff. And they're like, wow, you've, you've got a lot, a lot of done in there. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I've, there are these other few features that I'm, I'm hoping I get to finish off because we're, we hadn't shipped IE3 yet, but we were getting, getting pretty close. And I'm like, you know, so I'm, I'm hoping I'll have, you know, feature X and, and Y done too to get them in. And I remember that the general take and, and somebody on the Trident team actually said, well, could you not? Because anything that I did that, that I shipped in IE3, they had to replicate in order to, to plug in and replace us. Mm -hmm. And so basically this turned into, we shipped IE3 with our, our previous engine, and then the Trident team came in and became that engine part. The rest of the guys who had been working on the HTML engine end of IE at the time, uh, they got moved off to other products, uh, to other other projects. And there were only two people from that team who moved into the Trident team. And one of them was me and one of them was my manager. <laughs> and um, and I worked on CSS in IE4 and added it to Trident at the time. So you didn't end up losing your job after all. But uh, and, and for those that don't know, Trident is, is still uh, in Internet Explorer to this day, correct? It is, actually. Well, I mean, their, their engine is still called Trident. Right. Obviously, they've done some dramatic changes right the the, the evolution the current version right mm -hmm. um when when do you think that i surpassed navigator in terms of features i mean obviously at some point you know you can look at the raw numbers of the the user percentages but in terms of features it's a better browser yeah so i think that when you look at what we did you know ie2 was kind of still ie2 was really the first real release because IE 1.0 was basically slap a coat of paint on it, replace the NCSA mosaic logo with a with a Microsoft Internet Explorer logo, uh, do internet shortcuts, and call it good. IE 2.0, we actually added a few features like tables. IE 3.0, um, the big thing that we did was we took what had been a monolithic program, the, the .exe, and we broke it up into multiple pieces so that there was a networking infrastructure library that IE used, but any other software package on the computer could use too. Any other package could use the HTML rendering engine as well. And that made a, a big, big difference in um, sort of usability um, for other packages, because you didn't just have to say, okay, now go run mosaic.exe with this URL, you could actually say, okay, embed an HTML control here. And at the same time, from a rendering engine perspective, we were, you know, we were close to keeping keeping up with Netscape, and we did do CSS, which I think took us ahead and along one vector. But we were we were competing, not clearly winning. I think when we did IE4, when we replaced the engine with the Trident engine, um, 
we had an amazing dynamic engine. I mean, it really, you could live edit. In fact, at one point, um, we had the build, and this never shipped this way, but it, we had our internal build set. So you would go to a Windows folder in um, in the the file manager, and you would like have it in tree view, and you would click on an HTML file, and it would open up in pane, and you could click in it and start editing, and then hit save, and it would save it in that file. Like it was all just built in dynamically, and it had way too many rough edges to ship that way, and it wasn't really designed to be a hardcore editor, but you could actually use it that way. Mm-hmm. And that was an amazing sort of demonstration of how dynamic the platform was. And you started seeing all these people who were trying to build things like network operating systems, laying things out using using this technology. And um, you know, when we did that, and we did positioning as well, CSS positioning, and I think that that really just took us to the point where we were clearly beating out Netscape from just from a pure coding coding perspective. I mean, Microsoft was sinking a lot of effort into building a really great browser and investing across the board in all of those technologies. Mm-hmm. And you end up uh, working on IE for what, 15 years? <laughs> Pretty close. Yeah, I was yeah. at I was at Microsoft for a little over 15 years, and almost all of that was in IE. So I stayed in a programmer, an engineer on the team throughout IE4, and then when we shipped IE4, I kind of said, you know, I'm really spending a lot of time on these standards things. Like I was, you know, spending a lot of time on the CSS working group. In fact, it helped start the CSS working group mm-hmm. and a bunch of other stuff. And I wasn't really getting any credit for it from the from the performance perspective, like, you know, when it came review time, all that standard stuff was basically extracurricular because it wasn't a core job of an engineer. And I was like, well, you know, you're you're sort of the Microsoft representative to these things. Like you're at some point you're, you're the co-chair of the HTML five working group for the W3C, right? Yeah. I mean, that was a lot later, but there, Uh there was just this problem where they didn't really have, um, they didn't really have a, a, a way to recognize that as a part of someone's job. So mm-hmm. when you were getting reviewed, you know, you were getting reviewed against other engineers and they all, um, you know, they all had pretty straightforward jobs like write code, debug code, ship code. And you can measure the and amount of lines of code written, you know. Exactly. You can measure the amount of, of code written. You can measure, you know, how much work they'd accomplished. And it was a lot easier from that perspective. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that, that made it kind of challenging. And I also looked at sort of what I was good at. It was like, well, I'm spending a lot of time on things that aren't just hardcore coding. So let's go, you know, let's, let's go be a program manager instead because I'm more organizing things than, you know, doing the, the coding part. And I remained a program manager or lead program manager the rest of the time that I was at Microsoft. So for another, I don't know, 13 years or so after that, 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, just to kind of wrap up asking about uh, Internet Explorer, um, you've even, you have a blog post where you even, you termed it that Internet Explorer sort of plateaued at some point. And I'm sure you've seen that that long uh, discussion on Quora about, you know, <laughs> did did IE stagnate 
and and it it's sort of i mean my takeaway from it it's sort of people seem to think that you know once the quote unquote browser wars are won then microsoft shifts all the resources to other projects they they think that that you know this is this is a this is a product that i don't know it doesn't go into maintenance mode or something but it, do you agree with that assessment that maybe they they took their eye off the ball they thought that you know this is a this is a battle that's been won and we can we can put all these people on other things oh yeah absolutely i mean it, it wasn't it wasn't the the sense wasn't you know this battle's been won so we can move on to a different one it was actually from inside the team we were trying to come up with this platform that you could build you know next generation applications on mm-hmm. and clearly the web had taught us some things that were really valuable that we just didn't have before i mean like the fact that declarative markup as a component of an application is really powerful and really useful that style sheet type ideas are are really powerful and useful the closest thing you had in the windows platform was dialog markup like .dlg files mm-hmm. and dialog templates were really not very flexible and not at all easy to use. So when we looked at what we wanted to do next, we basically, you know, we didn't really have a strong competitor in the browser market anymore. We'd clearly beat out Netscape at that point. Like they were still struggling to implement CSS positioning rather than their own, you know, layers hack to try to to mm-hmm. uh, to to allow precise positioning of elements. So um the core, most of the IE team basically went off to try to define what a programming platform for the next generation would look like. And there were a lot of valuable lessons we took with us from the web space. And there were also a bunch of places where the eye was clearly taken off the ball. And, mm. you know, we didn't, it wasn't a standards markup thing other than, yeah, it's based on XML, which was probably not a powerful decision, uh, not an empowering decision as much as it was a restrictive one. And, um, you know, hey, let's go reinvent the styling engine because we could do it a little better for our our scenarios and that sort of thing. And what we ended up with was XAML, was the .NET 3.0 framework mm-hmm. platform. And in that time, though, you know, IE already had a servicing team that was responsible for doing the... Um, the security fixes and, you know, customer-based fixes and things like that. And the eventual IE7 team basically grew out of that team mm-hmm. instead because they got, you know, they, they got built up at some point when it started becoming clearer and clearer that we really did need to compete in the browser space again. Because uh, Firefox has, has come on the scene at this point. Well, Firefox and I think uh, Safari was, was on the scene as well, or mm-hmm. at least it was up and coming, and it was clear that... You know, the, there was a lot of renewed interest in the browser space, and there were engines that were doing a lot more powerful things and, and were doing things that were more useful than what IE could support at the time. Mm-hmm. So these these days, I mean, it's it's Internet Explorer that it seems to be on the decline in terms of, you know, user percentage numbers. And actually, we should say... Uh, you're you're not at Microsoft anymore. What was was IE8 the last version you worked on? So IE8 was the last version I was in the core IE team for, mm-hmm. and then right after we shipped IE8, I left the core IE team and I went over to the developer division mm-hmm. and um, worked on the JavaScript engine team. 
So the team that provides the JavaScript engine that we shipped in IE, but not within the team scope of IE. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Well, so can I ask you the question that I'm sure you've been asked a lot, but... um. You know what? What should the future? What should Microsoft do with IE? I mean, you know, people talk about it should adopt WebKit, fork WebKit, like Google has done. But you know, not that long ago, everyone was saying that IE should adopt Gecko. So, <laughs> you know, what from your perspective now, outside of outside of the team and outside of Microsoft, what would your you know prescription for the future life cycle of IE be? So I think that. Um, looking at it from a, an abstracted viewpoint, Microsoft really does need to build a business model for itself that is based on having this open platform of the web as the core of what most people's computing experience will be. And that's an immense change for the company. I mean, for the Windows division, at least. It basically is saying, you know, Windows will continue to be a viable platform, but it's not going to be the platform that 95% of all software is written for. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the platform that 5% of software is written for, and everything else runs on the web platform that runs in the web, the Windows platform. And that's really that vision of, you know, the web platform should be powerful enough to do the bulk of the things you need to do is, is sort of the vision behind Chrome OS. And I think that that's, um, that's a pretty powerful set of capabilities like it's a pretty powerful platform i have a number of chrome os devices and you know they kind of just i scatter them around the house because mm -hmm. whenever i need a computer i just pick it up and and start working on it and i don't need to excuse me i don't need to worry about you know who has or where a particular file is or something like that mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're just there and um i think that in terms of what ie itself should do I think that the IE team actually has been doing a lot of the right things. Um, they've been doing all the catch-up work and trying to get back in the the core game. They've done some amazing work at performance and stability and things like that. And the biggest challenge for them is mapping the course forward. And this has been one of the biggest challenges from outside the company working with IE is that they do tend to be fairly opaque about what they're working on. And how they feel about particular standards or things that are in development. And the model that, that Google has and even that Safari has and certainly the model that, that Firefox has is very open about, you know, these are the things that we think are critical to address next. Mm -hmm. These are the things that we're working on and then collaboratively defining the right solution. Because I know to the people that I work with on the Chrome team, you know, getting – Chrome adoption is not our goal. Mm -hmm. Like we don't measure ourselves by what our browser adoption is. I know it's significant and that's all I really need to know because I'm more interested in making sure that we're building a powerful and viable platform 
in the open web platform for the mm. future and that it goes everywhere, not just where Chrome does. Well, and if you haven't figured out uh, by this point, he, he's uh, at Google now. And tell us a little bit about what you're, what you're doing at Google these days. So um, when I started at Google, and I've been at Google for three, almost three and a half years, I guess. Um, when I started at Google, I had to take a year off from the web platform, from the web browser space, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, so I worked on the Google TV project, which was kind of cool. Also, the web platform, but the web platform in a very different space. Mm -hmm. And it's like... What, does, what do you do, how do you make a web page or a web application work well when you're sitting 10 feet away from it and you have a controller that has, at best, a really crummy mouse, no touch screen, and you know, your screen is 60 inches wide, but it's 10 feet away from you? Like, How does that change the experience? Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting to imagine that way, particularly since as I rolled off of that and went into the Chrome team, into the Chrome Developer Relations team, Really, the, the rise of mobile is just on the, the ascent where we have to really focus on, well, what does it mean to have the web platform in this much smaller screen or you know, this medium-sized screen that you're holding much closer to you? Mm -hmm. And all of those differences have been really interesting to map out and figure out you know, how the differences in interaction happen and that the web platform isn't just a desktop screen with a mouse and a keyboard where you're sitting, you know, three feet away from the computer. Mm -hmm. So looking back, I mean, it's been, uh, well, it's been more than 20 years now since Mosaic and it's, it's coming on 20 years for Internet Explorer. And so off and on, you've been working on browser technology for the better part of two decades at this point. Yep. Um, how do you feel about the state of, browser technology in particular? Has, has it lived up to what you thought it would be at this point? Has it exceeded your expectations? Or I, I think I know your answer. Is there still more, <laughs> is there still more to be done? Um, yes to all of those things. <laughs> I think that it's, you know, more than anything, I have to say the web platform has exceeded my expectations because I still remember the very first time I got uh, I got HTML content pulled over the network through libw3 and I was displaying it on my debugging monitor mm -hmm. in my office at NCSA with John Middlehauser sitting over my shoulder looking at it and thinking that was amazing. And I mean, this was, you know, actually displaying on a, I think it was an orange screen debugging monitor. Um, so light years away from where we are today. I mean, go play around on Chrome experiments or some other site that, that has a bunch of of hot new things on it. And you just see how much more richly expressive and programmatic the web platform is today. And I can't, you know, <laughs> I can't be so conceited that I would say, oh, I predicted all that. I was sure that all that was going to happen mm -hmm. um, because I didn't. You know, I, I knew that it was going to be an amazing thing. And the sort of the social aspect of everyone can publish on this platform was going to be amazing. But the idea that it would become this powerful and interoperable, I, I can't take any credit for, for thinking that up front. Right. At the same time, I think there are still areas where I wish that, we, um, that, we, that it was easier, that it was more obvious how to do some things. And I think there are some expectations of um, – there are some expectations that people have that aren't really there yet about 
knowing exactly what's going on when you run a web page. And there's an expectation that I would think developers would be more careful about how they build pages as well. I mean, you go to some pages and you watch it in the debugging monitor and it downloads like a hundred different components to build a fairly simple page. Mm -hmm. And that seems kind of, um, that seems kind of broken to me. (laughs) It seems like, you know, paying more attention to your efficiency would be, would be more important. So more efficient, simpler sort of. Yeah. I mean, structurally simpler at least. Yeah. And is, is the open web um, a way of getting to that? I think that there's just an education process for developers to go through. And this is something that in my role in Chrome on the, the developer relations team, this is pretty much what we do. We try to teach people to understand the tool sets that they have available so they can go investigate these things and figure out how to build you know, super efficient web pages or super powerful web pages. I think that the the complexity isn't something that um, that the platform itself will necessarily fix. Although there are some really exciting things like web components that will allow you to encapsulate complexity and then think of something as as quite simple. Well, Chris Wilson, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, recollect all this for us. <laughs> Absolutely, thanks for having me. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.